Slump Buster Podcast. Slump Buster Podcast. The first quarter starts now. Okay, Kyle, it's time to talk about your favorite pastime, the AFC South. We have the Indianapolis Colts traveling on the road to face the Tennessee Titans. The Colts are 3-2-1. and one. The Tennessee Titans are coming off bye week at 3-2. and two. Early line is a three-point advantage to the Tennessee Titans. As we know, Vegas typically gives the home team three points. So basically, this is a pick em. What do you think? Uh, my, my, for those who don't know at this point, my my fantasy football name, at least the, the past year or so, has been AFC South is a pyramid scheme. And I have uh, firmly believed this for about, uh, say, four years now that the AFC South exists to make a bunch of money, secure one playoff spot where they will lose on ESPN, usually in the 130 time slot on Saturday. Not always, but usually it's 130 time slot Saturday where they will lose because no one wants to watch the AFC South play football. Even when they make the playoffs, it's not fun. Even when they do cool shit like the Jaguars making the AFC championship game, it's with Blake Bortles. Wasn't fun to watch. They were just kind of were stupid and beat the Steelers. But anyways, this game... Can't believe the Colts are three, two, and one. It's kind of weird. It's kind of weird that they're in that position. It's a countdown to, to meteorocracy. Three, two, one, eight, and nine. <laughs> well, I guess eight, eight, and one in this context. They can have uh, a true, that, eight, true eight, eight, and one. Eight, eight, and one. Yeah. They, if, they literally can if, go 500. That's still in play. If you had to guess, according to Football Outsiders DVOA rankings, which again, DVOA is kind of like, they they give a rating that takes game situation into account. It's a really good metric. If you had to guess, what do you think the Colts offense is ranked in the NFL at this point in the season? Given that they finally toppled the 20-point mark this past week, I would have to assume either 31st or 32nd. Uh, you would be correct. They are 32nd in the NFL at this point in, in offensive metric. They went 110 minutes of football without scoring a touchdown over the past two weeks. The Indianapolis Colts are somehow worse than the Carolina Panthers at offense this season, which is pretty remarkable given how bad the Carolina Panthers are at, at offense. Uh, they are somehow worse than Washington. Those numbers will get better as time goes on because Carolina and Washington now not only suck, but don't have their quarterbacks anymore as the Panthers start siphoning off assets to try and like dodge taxes or whatever the Panthers exist for at this point. But the Colts are really bad at offense. Jonathan Taylor being out explains a lot of it. They just don't have the receivers. Offensive line isn't the same thing it once was when, you know, that last Andrew Luck season and the Jacoby Brissett season and the Phillip Rivers season, they were consistently one of the five best offensive lines in the NFL. And I still attest Quentin Nelson should make the Hall of Fame if he retired tomorrow because he made all pro three seasons already. And some Hall of Famers only make all pro twice. And he did it three times in the first three seasons, but they're not the same offensive line. And you take away Jonathan Taylor, there's just nothing they can really do on offense unless the Jacksonville Jaguars corners all get hurt and then all get burned by Paris Campbell and Alec Pierce, which is saying a lot about the state of your secondary. Hold up, hold up. You're, you're saying that you're not advocating for let Matt Ryan cook? The rotting corpse cooked. of Matt Ryan cannot cook. Even, even on the game-winning drive, even when Matt Ryan executed an excellent two-minute drill, vintage Matt Ryan, as my brother called it, I saw a drive where the play before he throws the game-winning touchdown, he tripped over his own center, fell to the ground, and just laid there like a corpse until he got touched down. <laughs> like, even when he does good things, he still trips over his own center on first down. Well, okay, we talk about the biggest 
difference in the offense was that Matt Ryan was throwing the ball more. He threw 58 times in the game against Jacksonville, which sounds insane. I, I think he was approaching some sort of record for attempts in the first half, something like 37, 38. He was, he was up there. He, he was slinging the ball a lot. And okay, you kind of downplayed their pass catchers a little bit. Let's talk about that. You don't think that the Alec Pierce, Michael Pittman combination is a solid one because I kind of like it a little. I think that it's capable. And also, if you stack it up against the rest of the league, I think every team other than like eight or 10 has a player that you can point to and say that's a wide receiver one. And I know Michael Pittman's a pretty good wide receiver one in terms of like fantasy production. I see Michael Pittman and I think if he's your number one, you kind of need to improve your receiving room. He's much better as your number two receiver, kind of like when the Jaguars were rolling out with DJ Chark for all those years and pretending like he was a number one. You're better off with uh, someone else because being your number one and Michael Pittman being your number two. But that's not to say that the Colts are a bad receiving core. Like the Bears are a bad receiving core. The Colts are a capable one. And there's a reason they're ranked 32nd in the league when you take away Jonathan Taylor and Naheem Hines. Well, they actually were pretty productive in the running game this week, or at least their running back. Deion Jackson was more productive for them. They were using the short passing game in lieu of their running game this week uh, with also, Naeem Hines out with a concussion. So they might have both of their running backs stable back this week. Tennessee, they've been banged up a lot, though. We talk about injuries. Tennessee has been one of the most banged up in the league. Uh, they're competing with the 49ers for how many injuries they can have. One of the big types of injuries they've suffered, unfortunately, is then the wide receiving core, so much to the point that the Athletic is posting articles. You know the perfect trade for the Tennessee Titans right now? Get A.J. Brown. The fact that they don't have A.J. Brown on this team <laughs> has proved a, a problem for them in the early going. Thank you, Athletic. Very tongue-in-cheek, but very spot-on because they really could use a receiver of his type. They're back to the Westbrook-Akini week-to-week hopes and Robert Woods, Bobby Trees, is not looking like he did a couple years ago in the Los Angeles Rams. Of course, he's still coming off a major knee injury as well. Derrick Henry, we're worried coming into the year. Can Derrick Henry come back off his first major injury, injury of his career and still be productive? He still is. He still is that guy. He still is Derrick Henry, so at least we don't have to worry about that. The problem is for Derrick Henry, the problem is for the Tennessee Titans as a whole is uh, Todd Downing still runs this offense. And he, in many ways, I think runs this offense in the ground. You look at what the Falcons have done with Arthur Smith. And I think Arthur Smith is actually showing that he has some good coaching chops. I don't see that with Todd Downing and running this team. So I think that that's probably one of the first things that the Tennessee Titans should probably do is get rid of Todd Downing. If they really want to take this team to, <laughs> another level or at least take it to a more respectable level because you were releasing Arthur Smith get good production out of Ryan Tannehill. I've never seen that since Todd Downing's taken over this team, this offense. See, I know the Titans are are trying to get a playoff spot this year. They probably will, given how how much the Colts have fallen apart and the fact that the Jaguars are the worst team in the NFL that's not actively tanking at this point is what Jacksonville is. They're they're like plus twenty four point differential, but are two and four at this point. So, like Tennessee's going to get that playoff spot by default. But man, just put Malik Willis in. Put Malik Willis in, and it would just be interesting to watch. I know no, that it, it's I'm not, not necessarily it. the no. That's and why. I mean, why that, play Tannehill when he's not going to be on the team after next year? Because and you can make not, the playoffs this year. I mean, you can make the playoffs with Malik Willis. I just, I, can, the Titans are in this weird I'm place. not going to bank on it. Totally Malik fair. Willis, totally I, fair. I, just, I mean, I saw him in the preseason. He had moments where, yeah, he was explosive and had the big running capabilities, but I don't think that he's going to suddenly turn into consistent week-to-week starter over the course of a year. They're trying to win games. 
Yeah, that's totally fair. And, you know, the the Titans are at this point, I would say like the sixth or seventh best team in the AFC and all of the AFC. Again, I'm in favor of Buffalo and Kansas City's winner this past weekend, which was Buffalo should win the AFC East and the AFC South and then get to play double elimination in the playoffs because Buffalo deserves it more than any of these teams. But the Titans offense runs through Derrick Henry at this point. And obviously, like you mentioned, injuries to Taylor Lewan and Traylon Burks and Westbrook Akina. Tennessee's defense has been an interesting place because obviously you don't have Harold Landry for the rest of the season. Their quarterback room at least isn't the atrocity that it was a couple years ago when they were trying to beat the Ravens in that playoff game. I think that was 2020, January 2021 when they were playing that. But at least their cornerback room is stable at this point. The matchup against the Colts will be interesting because the Colts can move the ball against Tennessee. I know the Colts offense, we just said they're 32nd in the league. I just crapped on them, et cetera, et cetera. But the Colts can actually move the ball against Tennessee's defense. It matches up really well for what the Colts are trying to do with or without Jonathan Taylor. Uh, like you said, short passing game works well, given that the, the Titans are probably going to play a lot of zone defense, I would assume. I could be wrong about that, but I assume they're going to play a lot of zone defense. And because I don't really like the the matchup there, I'm actually going to roll with Indianapolis this, this week. I'm going to take the Colts to get to 4-2-1 and one and set back the Titans a little bit in the standings. I, I think both teams would then be 1-1 one and one against each other at that point for the season. And that feels about appropriate for the, the state of the Colts and Titans. Titans rivalry. So I'm actually going to roll with the Colts, despite the fact I bet the under, I don't know what the under is bet the under, no matter what the under is, but I'm going to, I'm going to roll with the Colts this week. I'm actually going to look at that Vegas line. So as I mentioned, they're giving the Titans three points and Mike Vrabel in his career as the Titans head coach, 67% winning percentage in one score games. I think that this is where Mike Vrabel is at his best when he's coaching in these tight situations, these in division games. I think he's going to be able to rally the troops, especially coming off a bye week. They're well-rested. They've had time to focus and prepare for the Colts. I think that they're going to be ready, more prepared for this matchup. Give me the Titans. So we're going to be separated on this one. I think the Titans are going to continue to do what they do in the AFC South, for better or worse. These guys are on fire. Let's hear more. Second quarter starts now. Okay, one of the most surprising things in the NFC so far to this point the Seattle Seahawks, three and three, and Geno Smith having a renaissance season for them. In fact, you do the numbers, you compare it to Russell Wilson, and it's kind of crazy that Seattle feels like, at least early on, they feel like the victors in this trade. We'll see how those draft picks, if they turn into anything. But if Russell Wilson continues to play like he has and did against the Chargers this past week, it's going to feel like highway robbery. It's going to feel like, one of the worst contracts in sports. On the other side of the ball, you have the Los Angeles Chargers. They are four and two coming off a Monday night football victory. They are almost a touchdown favorite, according to early betting lines at home against Seattle. Though I think this game is going to be a lot closer than the early lines suggest. Seattle, to their credit, I mean, other than the game against the Niners where they got blown out, they, they've been pretty in most of these games and their offense has been the story for them. In fact, they might have found another gem. Kenneth Walker looked really good. I think about Kenneth Walker going against this Los Angeles Chargers defense, and I think that that's a matchup that screams someone having a breakout 150-yard, two-touchdown performance. You know that pain. You grew up in that pain. You know what it is like to be a Chargers <laughs> fan. 
Yes. For for those who are listening, I am a five year recovering Chargers fan. It will it will be six years at the end of this year as a recovering Chargers fan. You too, if you are in an abusive relationship with your football team, you too can get off that narcotic. If you're a Lions fan, if you are a Falcons fan, uh Houston Texans fan, you too can get off that narcotic. Uh there is hope. I am hope for a brighter future. I am five years relinquished from that Charger fandom. In terms of analysis for Los Angeles, I will say I, I kind of just chalked up the Chargers season as being wasted when I saw that literally their six best players were all hurt a couple weeks ago. And Justin Herbert's playing through torn rib cartilage, which is absolutely insane. And we just kind of stopped talking about it because like after he decided he was going to play through it, we're like, oh, OK, it's a story for one week and then whatever. But like this is an eight to 12 week injury that Justin Herbert is just playing through at this point. And it's pretty remarkable. Bose has obviously been out for them and he'll continue to be out but he'll come back before the playoffs hopefully which given the state of the AFC I think the Chargers are still a playoff team at this point Uh, obviously no more Corey Lindsley or Rashawn Slater man it was an ugly win against Denver but a win nonetheless got to get those division victories if you want to stack up enough wins to beat I guess the Patriots and Jets at this point for the AFC's sixth and seventh wildcard spots you build up a four and two resume early on it puts you in the driver's seat for, as you mentioned, a wild card position. So it's very hard to pick apart the Chargers season to this point just off of that alone. But it feels like a very ugly way to get there to this point. It's not the way that they envision when they signed all the guys that they did. In fact, I saw that JC Jackson literally got benched in the game against the Broncos. I talked about Russell Wilson's contract being a bad one. JC Jackson, again, The Patriots may have bet on letting a guy go too early rather than too late. The case of JC Jackson, who knows, they may have been right, or maybe he was just a more scheme dependent cornerback than we gave him credit for. Seattle was scoring 24.3 points per game. The Chargers scoring 24.4. Seattle Mm -hmm. is allowing 27.2 points per game. The Chargers allowing 27.2. So they're Mm -hmm. dead even. These teams aren't miles apart. I, I think for me is... I perceive and look at Seattle's defense and think that they're worse. I know they're a bad defense, but the Chargers, I looked at all the names that they had on their defense, at least going into the year. You mentioned Bosa's hurt. Uh, JC Jackson has struggled. They're definitely not a good defense. Today, why they had a pretty solid performance is mostly just because Russell Wilson washed. And by the way, DVOA numbers, according to Football Outsiders, back up your claim, which is like they've given up the same amount of points, but we feel like the Chargers are better than Seattle. This hasn't factored in the Broncos game yet, but they didn't have an awful defensive performance, so I'm sure it won't change that dramatically. Chargers are ranked 16th in the league, according to DVOA's Football Outsiders number. Seattle's ranked 23rd in the league, so you would be correct. Your eyes are not deceiving you. The Chargers have played slightly better than the Seattle defense, despite the fact they've given up the same number of points. I think the difference in the game is that, yeah, both these offenses are overwhelming, but Seattle's defense ain't shit. (laughs) And when the Chargers defense is healthy, they are at least pretty good. So I will say Seattle, I know they're getting better. I know they have a lot of young pieces. They've drafted, they've spent a lot of draft capital on defense. Those corners, Tariq Woolen. I mean, we make this mistake every year where we're like, oh my God, Tariq Woolen has four interceptions in four games. Only Richard Sherman has done that in a Seahawk. Like we know interceptions are a byproduct of targets. Trayvon Diggs exposed that last year. Basically, it's flashy that he has four interceptions so far this year, but it's a young defense. 
it, I've seen them get exposed by multiple teams so far this year that I don't think of as having great offense. Detroit teams that don't think of as having great, great offenses. So I look at Seattle and I think that that's probably where the six point spread is coming from is their defense ain't really shit at this point, but they are an overwhelming offense. Is this a bet the over game? I don't know because I don't know what Geno Smith is. So Geno Smith has obviously been excellent so far this season. It's obviously a small sample size and he's Fourth had duds QBR in, in the league. Yeah. And, and he, he played not great against Arizona. That number is going down slowly, but steadily backup quarterbacks tend to ha- like what happened with Cooper rush on Sunday that, or what happened with Taylor Heineke last year, like backup quarterbacks have those games where you're like, Oh yeah, that's why they're backup quarterbacks. Gino hasn't had that yet. And I, and we finally stopped calling him a backup. He's a starting caliber quarterback yeah, in the NFL. Absolutely. And that's something that most people weren't saying it. When I said Geno Smith was going to start over Drew Locke and everyone kind of knew it in Seattle, people were like, oh, why is that going to happen? Well, pretty clearly Drew Locke is terrible. I was doing it based on Drew Locke is terrible, not Geno Smith is well, this. Well, remember, but- Pete Carroll did tell us they have two QB1s. Yeah, no, Drew Locke does not belong in the NFL, period. I've said that for two years. I still believe that. But to the Geno Smith point, even if Geno Smith doesn't have the overwhelming offense that he's had and like all of a sudden he starts turning it over, his completion percentage drops from 76%, which is like Drew Brees levels of good which means he's going to go down at some point. Pete Carroll has the strategy of basically what Mel Tucker did, which is smoke cigarettes, call run plays for Kenneth Walker and make $90 million. Cause that's kind of what Mel Tucker did. He just called Kenneth Walker, do cool shit and made $90 million at Michigan state. Pete Carroll is now, now that Rashad Penny's out for season, Pete Carroll can call the Kenneth Walker, do cool shit plays. And that will probably let the Seahawks possess it, but it probably means that you won't hit the over. Geno Smith, I do expect him to turn back into a pumpkin, but I can't expect it against this Los Angeles Chargers defense. I, I feel as though if you're a fantasy owner, free fantasy guys, I think Geno Smith's a good little play this week against Los Angeles Chargers just because I think this is a bad defense. You know, I think this is an opportunity for them. I would say this could be a bet the over game. How are you feeling as far as a prediction? Uh, This one's tough because... You're right. Like if Geno Smith were a higher quality quarterback and we had a sample size of like years that would determine that, I think I'd agree with you. But also Arizona's defense is worse than the Chargers and Arizona kind of held him in check to his like, I think he had like a 70 passer rating in that game. Like that's a division game, though. Those are kind of weird games all the time. I mean, sure, sure. I could hear you out on the argument for that one. I'm not saying Geno Smith is going to regress. I'm saying I just don't have the representative sample size that suggests, hey, everyone in the league was wrong for seven years about Geno Smith. I've like probably not. Maybe it is. Maybe it isn't like Geno Smith is better than we thought at this point. How good he is. We don't actually know to terms on a prediction. I'm going to roll with the Chargers because uh, while Seattle is better than I thought they were, Seattle is, is certainly far from a playoff team. I think the best thing you can say about him is they are as good as last year's Seahawks team, which maybe if Russell Wilson stays healthy, they sneak that seventh playoff spot over Philadelphia. But that, that was just the four games that you subtract of Russell Wilson. Maybe it changes the outcome. I think they went one and two in the games he didn't start. So, you know, maybe that's the difference there. But I think Seattle is kind of firmly entrenched at this point. This could change if like they decide to start. I mean, not I'm not saying tank like as a team, but I'm saying like if at the end of the season they start losing a bunch of games in a row and that changes. But right now they're better than Arizona. 
And that's something I think everyone would have been shocked by at the start of the season. Even those who are picking the 49ers and Rams to be the two best teams in the division. I don't think many people saw like Seattle being better than Arizona and Geno Smith having a better <laughs> season than Kyler Murray. <laughs> Uh, I, I think something that I learned watching the Seattle Arizona game is that Pete still has something in the tank too. He's still a good defensive play calling head coach. And I think that that's a problem for Brandon Staley and this Los Angeles chargers. I think Pete and that coaching staff will be able to scheme something up that won't exactly hold Justin Herbert in check, but will be good enough to put him in difficult situations, make him a little bit uncomfortable and I think that that's going to be what keeps them in the game. And then I look at the Chargers defense, and I don't think they're going to have a lot of great answers for what Geno Smith does. Like you mentioned, the 77% completion percentage is a little bit of an albatross hanging over his stat line. But reading it for what it is right now, they're able to control the clock, manage well, move the ball, move the pocket with Geno Smith's mobility, use Kenneth Walker to get big chunk gains. And I think that there will be chunk gains to be had in this game. I think I'm going to go with the Seahawks. I like them a little bit more. I I think that it should be a coaching clinic when you consider Pete Carroll to Brandon Staley. Again, four and two, I will still say this. I think Brandon Staley is a coach that should be considered on the hot seat. Somehow, some way, I think that don't waste Justin Herbert's prime. Get him a coach that's actually going to elevate him and play. I don't think Brandon Staley is that guy. But maybe the Slumbuster guys are killing it. Half done. Third quarter is beginning now. Kyle, it's time for a Super Bowl rematch. We have the Kansas City Chiefs traveling to San Francisco. The Chiefs coming off a loss to the Buffalo Bills. They dropped to four and two. The San Francisco 49ers coming off a loss to the Atlanta Falcons. They dropped to three and three. The current betting line is going to be minus three in favor of the Kansas City Chiefs. Meanwhile, the 49ers, they just had a hell of a week, man. It wasn't just the loss. It was the lost guys on the field. This insane rash of injuries. I'm just going to read them off. So from the start of the year, quarterback, Trey Lance, done for the year. We know how that one ended. Running back, Elijah Mitchell, MCL. I think he's still probably like four to five weeks away. Trent Williams, all pro left tackle. Trent Williams may be back this week. He's dealing with a high ankle sprain. Even if he does come back, hard to tell what his mobility is going to be. And if that's going to be a type of injury that's reoccurring. Mike McGlinchey, the other side of the offensive (laughs) line. Mike McGlinchey had a calf injury. Who knows what that's going to be about? Probably day-to-day, but I never like to hear calf injuries with my tackles. Colton McKibbitts, our backup tackle. Knee spray. Okay, let's go to the defense, right? Couldn't get any worse than the offense. Wrong. Nick Bosa, still dealing with a groin injury. They sat him against the Falcons, and I anticipate that he should be ready to go, should be fine to go in this game. That was the idea of sitting him against the Falcons. If not, that's a huge loss. I'm talk- We're talking about a double-digit sack guy that you're losing from your team. Okay, Samson Ebukam. Ebukam got hurt twice against the Falcons. Javon Kinlaw, first round pick. Javon Kinlaw, another knee injury. Doesn't look like that fifth year option is going to get picked up. Eric Armstead, multiple week injury, dealing with a foot. Ankle. You just listed their entire defensive yeah. line. No, no, you no, just no, listed it, the it, entire it keeps going. Line. It keeps going. We have Maurice Hurst, torn bicep out for the season. Aziz Al Shayer, very productive linebacker for us. MCL sprain. Demetrius Flanagan Foles. Knee injury left late in the game. 
against the Falcons. Cornerback, Emmanuel Mosley, torn ACL. Cornerback, Charvarius Ward, big offseason acquisition by the team and was playing amazing. One of the best corners, according to PFF in the league, former Kansas City Chief, literally come in handy this week. He's dealing with the groin. Day-to-day, might still play. We'll see. Jason Verrett, ACL recovery. Playing that game, ACL recovery for Jason Verrett. See if he's back. Jimmy Ward, again, mentioned this last <laughs> Broken hand after coming back from a hamstring injury. This is the state of the San Francisco 49ers, the 49 IRs. That, that, Juju, that's what you the just, name has changed you, to. You just listed four defensive linemen. Three linebackers, two corners, a slot corner, and a safety. That's an entire starting lineup. You just listed four defensive linemen, three different linebackers, both of their starting corners, Jason Verrett, who's basically you could call a slot corner, and Jimmy Ward. That's an entire starting lineup. That's 11 players all hurt on the 49ers, and they're still somehow the second best team in the NFC. See, I I just got a Red Warner. Uh, This one's for you, man. Uh, Stay healthy, (laughs) drink water, do plenty of stretching. We can't afford Fred Warner. He's the only one that stayed consistent on this team healthy. I don't know. I'm knocking on all the wood. This is... uh, Knock on the 49ers helmet for good luck. It's back here. It's back here. All right. (laughs) God. (laughs) I don't know, man. I really don't know how this is even possible. Is it... It can't all just be bad luck. Can it... Is it well, what what's more impossible? What more impossible? Is it your entire starting defense? I mean, not your entire starting defense, but an entire starting lineup's worth of defensive players getting hurt? Or is it allowing uh, Marcus Mariota to go nine for nine for 115 yards and two touchdowns to begin a football game? Because I think those two go hand in hand, but both were just equally jarring for the San Francisco 49ers. You talk about Marcus Mariota's start, that opening drop. I think I saw four injuries on just the opening drive. Tono Hufanga had to leave to go in a concussion protocol. You know, the big thing about the loss of the Falcons, and if you're just kind of like watching the box score, maybe some of the highlights, it's kind of hard to understand how that game happened. It was a game of missed opportunities because the plays were there to be had. There was a horrible, horrible Ray Ray McLeod drop that was on a dime by Jimmy Garoppolo. That would have been an easy walk-in touchdown missed. Just off his hands, just miss. And then maybe like two drives later, Charlie Warner, another dime. Perfect. Breadbasket. Touchdown. Nope. Drops it. Backup tight end, sure. But Charlie Warner, he's still a pro. You're expected to catch it. And then you have this holding call on the offensive lineman where Mike McGlinchey's on his back. I don't know how he ends up getting the holding call, but uh, Brandon Ayuk, deep ball taken away. It would have been like a career day for Jimmy Garoppolo from a deep ball passing perspective. But all three of those just wipe them yeah, off the Yeah, because the Falcons secondary is trash and the, the 49ers happen to be down 14 points, which by the way, Arthur Smith with a 14 point lead is like that meme with Adam Sandler from Uncut Gems. That's basically what Arthur Smith is whenever you give him a 14 point lead because he's like, wait, I can just run the ball on every play. I can scheme runs on every play. Like to they the went Falcons down 14. Credit. They know how to run the ball though. The Falcons are a sneaky good team or they're at least a team that just knock off anyone in the league just because they can <laughs> they're run the better ball than the Panthers they can they're run the ball better than Carolina well, talent. they were almost better than the Buccaneers on a given week they're or better <laughs> than the Niners on a week week to week can run the ball down your throat okay so the Chiefs 
let's focus the talk to the Chiefs. <laughs> the Chiefs get to essentially face the Niners JV defense with all the injuries. That's a fun combination. You want to know how you get a three-point advantage on the road? What well, helps when the entire team, the entire opposing defense is injured? Talk about a horrible matchup to have Patrick Mahomes coming into town while your entire defense is on the mend. Oh yeah, this would be a classic trap game if they're def- Think about this. this. The Kansas City Chiefs, their top three corners are all either out or battling injuries at this point. That's perfect for what the 49ers want to do with the zone schemes. Like you're telling me that you have passing options wherever you want it, which is then going to open up the linebackers. So then my- Kyle Shanahan can just run the ball zone running up. Oh my God, it would have been perfect for what San Francisco is doing. And the, the, I mean, it's they still technically can, but it's, it's a lot more difficult when you don't have a defense and Kansas City is going to basically just hold the ball for, I want to say, 45 minutes in this game because that's what Kansas City wants to do. Um, yeah, I'm picking Kansas City to win this game. And if you want 45 minutes of X's and O's, Chiefs versus Bills analysis, I did that on my podcast. It's I just there's I, it's one of the most proud episodes I've ever done. So check that out. There's a lot of good Chiefs stuff, but Kansas City's in this interesting place where Patrick Mahomes is having his highest completion percentage season ever because he's just taking what defenses give him and their offense is not explosive. Like on that last drive, the play before Mahomes throws the interception, McCall Hardman should have ran back to the ball instead of up and and it would have changed the whole dynamic of that final drive. And there's just so many interesting aspects with the Kansas City offense. The reason that it's safe to bet Kansas City is like you said, defense is injured. Also, go look at Andy Reid's record after a loss it is quite remarkable Andy Reid does not take losses lying down so I think that uh Kansas City is going to find themselves in a a winnable situation where they are going to run a lot of six minute drives if they can help it and maybe just maybe they'll be able to take one deep uh with either Sky Moore or I guess Bell is kind of the the other deep threat guy like Gray and Bell are the ones who are catching 50 yard touchdowns for Kansas City this year so not exactly sure how they're going to scheme that up but I imagine that they'll try and control time of possession and uh, that will be their key to victory. I don't see any deep shots happening in this game to their credit, even with an injured defense. Uh, D'Amico Ryans has done a great job of scheming the Niners defense to not allow the big play opportunities. You look at the Falcons game, what they were really doing is just they were just dinking and dunking you to death, which I think is a viable strategy for Patrick Mahomes and the Chiefs to do. You're going to have a lot of Clyde Edwards-Hilaire open in the middle. You're going to have a lot of Juju Smith-Schuster. Travis Kelsey is going to be a problem. Yeah. I mean, if you're going to have to hope that you get the best Telenoho Fanga, that you get the best out of Fred Warner to be able to contain him. I imagine there's going to be a lot of bracket coverage there. But even then, you're going to have to live with Travis Kelsey's going to beat you. Yeah, adding to, to that point, like if Kelsey has one of those games where we look up and it's like 12 catches for 110 yards, we wouldn't be surprised if that's what happened. Like it would be like, yeah, that's a game where that could happen. Yeah, so I'm not really worried about the big play, but I think that there's going to be a lot more open plays in the intermediate game. So I could see the Chiefs being able to easily string together 10, 12, 15 play drives because the Niners personnel is just not lining up for them this week. Ideally, you get your pass rusher back with Nick Bosa. Ideally, you have Traverius Ward able to play and you could stack him on whoever the top wide receiving target is for the Chiefs. Uh, clearly, it's looking like Juju was the best, although his touchdown came on a broken coverage. So it's kind of hard to read too much into that as well. I unfortunately, I, I have to do it. I, I just can't bank on essentially a backup defense as good as I think our backups are. It's as good as the depth that is on this Niners team from a defensive playmaking perspective, Chris Kasarek and what he's been able to do with the defensive line 
I think has really saved the Niners. I have to go with the Chiefs. I, I hate that I have to do that. I really can do, <laughs> but it's just not lining up from them from a scheduling perspective. If you had told me that the injuries happened like the week after against the Rams or something like that, sure. But you you really wish you were facing the Panthers this week. Oh well. Oh well. And now starts the final quarter. Buckle up. Buckle up. This is the Slump Buster Podcast. So it's been a couple of weeks since we've had an opportunity to pander to two and on, but we are back because Sunday night football features the Pittsburgh Steelers traveling into Miami. They are seven point underdogs. The two and four Steelers will take on the three and three dolphins. Mitch Trubisky reinserted as starter after Kenny Pickett was injured in the previous game Tua Tunga Vailoa potentially back, seemingly back. it seems like the dolphins just couldn't escape the injury bug at the quarterback position, but thankfully their week one starter is finally healthy and off of the men. And we're all happy to see it. Obviously, Tua, that big hit kind of like shook us all, shook the football world as we re-entered the conversation about concussions. But he's healthy. He's safe. He's back. Hopefully, he continues to be such. It's a violent game. Sometimes you just can't avoid it. That's the sucky thing about talking about this game. But Tua, hoping that you continue where you left off because where he left off, we were talking about the Dolphins as a legitimate contender in the AFC. They had really started to turn things around. Uh, Tua had that six-touchdown performance earlier in the year against the Ravens and was really looking sharp. Now he's back. So how does that change things for the Dolphins? Do you think they could just pick up right where they left off? I mean, I know it's small sample size, and obviously small sample size always take it with a grain of salt. And at the same time, there's a pretty distinct comparison of what the Dolphins offense looks like with Tua versus what it looks like with Teddy Bridgewater and Skylar Thompson, right? Like Skylar Thompson, of course, that makes sense. Nobody knew who Skylar Thompson was except a small pocket of Tua and on that really fell behind Skylar Thompson in the preseason. They they really liked watching Skylar Thompson in the preseason, and but everyone else didn't really know who he was. So you're, you're sitting with that and Teddy and I mean, Tua coming back changes everything for the Dolphins because I think if Teddy's starting that game, like they're only like a three point favorite, maybe like Tua swings that game in a huge direction for the Dolphins. And I think that means that Tua might be slightly more than a game manager. Tua might be a slightly better version of, I mean, people were saying he was Jimmy Garoppolo coming into the year. And I kept saying, we don't know what he is, but we know what he isn't. We know he's not Justin Herbert, but we don't know exactly what he is. I think this is a sign that with a larger sample size and offensive line, those weapons like Tua might be something nice, or at least a team that he leads a team that with talented players can go it, uh, play Pittsburgh and have it be a game where they kind of like aren't feeling scared to lose, which like last 20 years, when have you said that the Dolphins play the Steelers and the Dolphins are feeling confident in their abilities? You know, it's funny. We look at what the Chiefs are doing and the Chiefs still have a very good offense, obviously one of the best in the league, but Tyreek Hill has still been amazing in Miami, despite having to play with, as you mentioned, Teddy Bridgewater and Skylar Thompson the last couple of weeks. With Tua, we were really seeing something special with Tyreek and Jalen Waddle and what they were doing in the passing game. I think the biggest difference for me, especially to go back to the game against Baltimore, is that we saw that when push comes to shove, Tua can start to sling the ball. That Mike McDaniel will develop the offense in a way that will allow Tua to sling the ball around, which is something that under the previous administration, Tua never had the opportunity to do. Speaking of the previous administration, Brian Flores, revenge game, Tua, is that narrative developing? 
Brian Flores is on that staff, and you better bet that Tua wants to uh, stick it to Brian Flores, who actively chose Ryan Fitzpatrick over him, actively chose Ryan Fitzpatrick over Tua because and had three different offensive coordinators in two years. And Brian Flores is a really great defensive coach, just okay. not there. Okay, but in fairness, in fairness to Brian Flores, after seeing that one video of Ryan Fitzpatrick no shirting it in Buffalo, New York on a cold day. <laughs> I would go with that man into battle any day myself. Talked about it for years, man. The the beauty of Fitz magic, the magic will bring you back into games that you never thought imaginable and you will lose games you never thought you could lose because that's what Fitz magic is. It takes some and it gives some. That's, that's the beauty <laughs> of Fitz magic. Not that motherfucker, according to Brady. Nope, it's not. It's not him. We know it's Derek Carr at this point. But it, basically, I was interested in that aspect of it because Look, I declared two weeks ago, Pittsburgh season is over. Like, like Pittsburgh's not going to make the playoffs. They're not playing for anything at this point. They, I said they had a stretch where they played, I believe, Buffalo, Tampa, Miami, and uh, I forgot who they play next week. It's, it's another team that's way above 500. Uh, I, and basically, I looked at that, and I'm like, Pittsburgh's going to walk out of that two and six. By the time they get to two and six, the season's going to be virtually over. They did get the win against Tampa. So that's the one out of the one and three I said in there. So I, I guess I'm betting on the Dolphins to uh, to win this football game. And uh, I guess I'm going to stick to my guns on the Steelers are going to be two and six at the end of this stretch. But I mean, now Kenny Pickett's hurt. So it's, it's Mitch Trubisky again. It's the same boring offense where Deontay Johnson has zero touchdowns this season. And Najee Harris is fantasy owners like pulling their hair out because they're in last place. If you drafted Najee Harris in the first round. And yeah, all that stuff that's happening with Pittsburgh is there. But Pittsburgh's defense, I mean, the, the thing that keeps them in games is that the, the same thing we talk about with Belichick, like Mike Tomlin's ability to scheme defenses is something that, you know, they're taking less. I mean, Pittsburgh has a good defense. Like, it's not like the Patriots where they just have no names and they're turning them into a top 10 defense the last two years. But Pittsburgh has guys. They're just overperforming expectations because of uh I assume what Mike Tomlin is able to do scheming uh, to keep the Buccaneers to 18 points. I know Tampa doesn't have the greatest offense this year, but 18 points against Tampa. <laughs> they won a game by forcing four turnovers of Joe Burrow, and uh, they are kind of a team that like they can't move the ball on offense. And they, I guess Mike Tomlin can keep them in games with the defensive scheming. Yeah, I, I think it's important with the upset of Tampa last week to not lose sight of what the offense was the previous five weeks under Mitch Trubisky while he was in charge of that team. And yeah, he was making some clutch throws. He was hitting Chase Claypool. He was slinging it around a little bit. But I, I feel like that's just sometimes when game planning breaks down and the backup quarterback could catch someone by surprise. Now that the Dolphins have a week to literally plan around Mitch Trubisky, they can go back to watching the tape of Mitch Trubisky through the first four weeks of the NFL season <laughs> where he was doing nada, zilch, nothing to help. Every, this every now and again, Mitch Trubisky has a fuck it Cooper Cups down there somewhere play. And I think he had two of them against the Bucks, but he had one against the uh, Bengals in overtime that won that game. And he had the one this last week against uh, or I think he had two against Tampa where he's just like, yeah, just someone's down there. Let's just throw it. Todd Bowles doesn't give you many opportunities, but you, if you take advantage of the opportunities he gives you, they can often change the course of a game. You talk about the Cooper Cup play in last year's playoff, and that's exactly what we saw with the Steelers and Bucks result. Uh, when it comes to the Dolphins side of things, like I said, their ability to be able to game plan around the fact you have Mitch coming back in. Uh, potentially, Pickett could still always come back. There's not going to rule it out. I'm recording this very early in the week, but 
assuming Mitch Trubisky's back out there. They won't send him out to the Wolves. Figure that it's probably going to be a little bit of a training wheels week for Tua being reinserted back in the lineup. I don't expect it to go back to business as usual coming off a couple week absence, especially we're talking about a cognitive injury when we talk about a head injury as he suffered. So it might be a little bit of a malaise, you know, just associated with those type of injuries. So we'll see how sharp he comes into this game. It's probably going to take him like a week or two to get readjusted in this offense. So going against the Pittsburgh Steelers defense, that's not going to be easy. I don't think that this is going to be a blowout as the line is suggesting a seven point line. I think this is going to be a lot closer than we really think. I will still take the Miami Dolphins to win outright, but I don't hate the Steelers with the points. There's, there's something that's telling me, again, slow start for Tua coming off the injury. Pittsburgh's defense is still tough. Limited offense with Trubisky. Low scoring game, but a game that the Dolphins should win and advance to four and three with. Yeah, but I agree with yeah. you. The 20, 20 to 17 type of game. And if you're looking for a fun prop bet, Jalen Waddle touchdown. I would bet on that one. Best two words in broadcasting, more Slump Buster. We're heading into OT with one more topic. Okay, so this one's a big-time game for the Texas football program, coming off a win against the Iowa State Cyclones. They're 5-2. and two. It was an ugly game, but you get the win, so you can't be that disappointed in yourself. They're going against Oklahoma State. So this is one of the big tests coming into the season was – how do you perform against the Oklahoma teams? Well, you beat one, but this week you get to travel to Stillwater. You get to take on the Oklahoma State Pokes. They're coming off a loss. They went against TCU, overtime game, lost in double overtime, I should say, 43-40. Uh, to 40. Uh, Back and forth game, kind of a bad game for them to lose. Up 30-16 to 16 late, uh, up until about the nine-minute mark, and then they give up the touchdown. They give up a couple touchdowns. They fall behind. They're able to get into overtime. It falls apart for them at the end. Ugly performance for Gundy and his guys. What do you think about this matchup early on coming in? Well, this one feels like a little bit of a toss-up. That's what I kind of think coming into this is that Texas, who kind of resides in that second-tier group right now of the Big 12, I think all the Big 12 teams might finish with nine and then one team might get 10 wins if they all beat each other up in a loop of mediocrity usually reserved for the Pac-12. But Texas is kind of in that tier right below Oklahoma State, or at least where Oklahoma State expects to be. Like Oklahoma State, if you remove Oklahoma from the equation, Baylor's having a poor season. Oklahoma State is as good as last year's Oklahoma State team. It's a lot of similar players. They've done well for themselves in the transfer portal, like relative to other teams. Like they can get four stars into that program through the transfer portal because of reputation. And Oklahoma State's a team that probably, I think most of us thought would be the favorite in the Big 12. And losing the TCU complicates the math a bit. And one of the spots in the Big 12 championship game is obviously still in Oklahoma's re Oklahoma State's reach. I'm just interested to see how they match up against Texas because both of those teams do things so differently on the offensive side of the ball. And defensively, they, they look like Big 12 teams now and again. But Oklahoma State's identity is very different than Texas's identity this year. So last year when Texas played Oklahoma State, they were not yet dead in the water. They were still like four and two going into that game, if I remember correctly. And at the time, Oklahoma State was undefeated. Obviously, they didn't lose until the very end of the year. And Texas had a lead. This is where things started really spiral on them. Texas was actually leading in that game in the third quarter, 24 to 13. From that point forward, 
Oklahoma State field goal, touchdown, touchdown, field goal. <laughs> you know, they were able to outscore them and win that game 32 to 24. This was one of the things that Sark was getting killed on is just not being able to have that killer instinct and put teams away to his credit seems to have been something that they kind of fixed, not really kind of fixed. It's gotten better, but you look at the Iowa state game, how they performed in that game. We talked about it. We talked about it in another video. Go ahead and check that one out on the channel. But in there, you are a 16 and a half point favorite and you're not <laughs> putting away Iowa state. That's frustrating. So you go into this game. This is a game that should be easy to get amped up for, right? yes, you probably are the favorite. We're seeing some early betting lines to suggest that Texas is the favorite, which is crazy to me because I still think Oklahoma State, like, yes, they lost the game to TCU, but they're still ranked number eight going into the weekend. So it's kind of crazy that Texas would be the favorite on the road in that uh, two and a half points we're seeing according to DraftKings as of today's recording. But regardless of what the betting line is, you're still the underdog to Oklahoma State. This is a team that beat you last year. That needs to be the talking point to Sark. He has to remind those guys that you aren't made men yet. You need to be able to go into Stillwater and get this win. If you do that, then everything's gravy. You beat both Oklahoma teams this year. You might drop another game late in the year. It's just something that I feel as though after the Iowa State performance I can expect. I don't expect Texas to run the table from this point moving forward. But you saw your low-end performance with Quinn Ewers in the lineup, right? Three touchdowns, mm -hmm. kind of a bad day by Quinn. Now it's, can Quinn be more consistent, perform on the road against this very good team? But also, like, if you go 9-3, and three, which is a game above what we expect, we both expected Texas to finish this year. If you go 9-3 and three and 7-2 and two in conference play, tiebreakers will go your way and you're in the Big 12 championship game because only TCU is undefeated in the, well, I guess Kansas State is for now, but only TCU is undefeated in conference play. So everything could go your way if you get those two losses, which obviously we're just kind of writing down they're going to fuck up at some point here <laughs> down the road. But yeah. this Oklahoma State game is is the one at the start of the year where I said, I mean, the Big 12 is totally flipped on its head, but I said there are probably three teams that Texas will be underdogs against Oklahoma State, Baylor, and Oklahoma. Now, Oklahoma has totally fallen off the face of the earth, and that hasn't happened to an Oklahoma football team in both of our entire lifetimes. And maybe you could swap TCU in there. I don't know what a betting line would be between Texas and TCU, but this is one of those games where it's another measuring stick. We talked about Bama was a measuring stick. Oklahoma was a measuring stick. Now you get another one of those games, and it kind of alternates like that. They have one game where they're heavy favorites and should by virtue of having all those four and five stars and one of the top 15 offenses in college football win. And then you have a game against a team who you're ultimately trying to reach within three years of the Sark era. So the remaining schedule for them. So they have Oklahoma state, obviously this week, Kansas state, the following TCU, Kansas and Baylor. So all teams that have been ranked or preseason ranked or have kind of hovered around being competitive this year. If you go, went three and two, you're happy. If you go in two and three, you're slightly disappointed. You just can't go one and four in this stretch. You just can't finish the season really ugly. Oklahoma State, I think they're going to give you opportunities. You, you just can't let them battle back. And as far as Oklahoma State, you know, they're going to come back in this performance. They don't want to drop too straight. Mike Gundy, he's, he's a longtime veteran. He's been coaching this team for a long time. 
He's going to come out and motivate the troops, I'm sure. It's just, can Sark motivate his guys? Can Sark get his guys to perform at their highest levels? Keep the game plan simple. Don't get ahead of yourself. Kill some clock. And I think that might be the pathway for them to beat Oklahoma State. Obviously, I'm going with Texas in this game. Uh, Kyle, Texas, Oklahoma State, how are you feeling as far as a prediction goes? I will say it's a coin toss and I don't have conviction either way. And uh, for some people who maybe aren't deep into the college football weeds at this point, Oklahoma State is a running team now. In case you didn't know, Oklahoma State air raid offense, Big 12 of the previous generations. They're a running team. They control the ball by running and they average like five yards a carry, which if that's in the NFL, that's like one of the best running teams in the, in the league. And Oklahoma State is going to try and use big plays with the ground game, which Texas's run defense has been a question mark for many, many games now. So it'll be interesting to watch that matchup. Can Oklahoma State do what they want to do on offense? Because Spencer Sanders is is no, shall we say, Mason Rudolph, who at one point was getting Heisman Trophy considerations during his last year at Oklahoma State. Spencer Sanders is just another quarterback in college football, and Oklahoma State has a power running game and a strong offensive line, and that's going to be the key to this game. So I'm going to take Oklahoma State because of I'm going to stick to the 8-4 and four model I had at the start of the year, even though, again, it's a toss-up game. Texas is going to have like four toss-up games the rest of the season, and theoretically, if you're flipping a coin four times, the most probable outcome is two and two. So over the last four games, minus the Baylor game, I'll say Texas goes two and two. But if I'm playing the most probable result, I will say that Oklahoma State uh, avoids losing back-to-back Big 12 games for the first time in four seasons. 